Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 212, When Dreams Come True. Lieutenant Commander Fritz Julius Lemp, the leader of U-110, was born in China in 1913 at an Imperial German naval Far Eastern base. He would grow up to be truculent and disobedient. Fortunately for Nazi Germany, he was also a great sub-leader, which is not to say that he did not give Berlin as many headaches as victories. When war came to Europe, Lemp was in command of U-30 and just off the west of Ireland. Ignoring Donitz's regulations, actually several of them, Lemp painted a logo on his conning towers, now easier to identify, and he, on that same day of September 3rd, 1939, attacked the Cunard liner Athenia. Lemp believed it was an armed merchant cruiser and so sent out two torpedoes. The problem was he did not ask for identification first, per the law. 117 passengers and crew died on the Athenia. Even before the war, the British and Germans had a treaty that said no ships would be sunk by either side without warning. So when Lemp returned home and proudly confessed that it was he that had sunk the merchantman, he was arrested and forced to stay home. That is, for one day. Then he was released. He was still one of Donitz's best, and now that the war was officially here, Lemp was needed. Previously, we have seen that during most of 1940, the U-boats had it good in the Atlantic, sinking tons of merchantmen with regularity. Lemp, like Gunther Preen and others, would become heroes. And in November of 1940, Lemp got his reward, command of a new, massive submarine, U-110, a Type 1XB type, with double the number of torpedoes and an AA gun, along with a 4.1-inch gun. U-110 was 251 feet long and had an operating radius of 8,700 miles before more fuel was needed. In March of 1941, Lemp was ordered to take a construction worker named Cruz aboard his sub. After all, Cruz had helped build the sub and others, so it was deemed best to let him see what it could do. It was on this journey that Lemp ran across convoy HX-112, it having left Canada. U-112 went in, along with four other U-boats, for the kill. U-100, this was her sixth patrol, led by Captain Joachim Shepk, approached HX-112 from behind during the pre-dawn hours of March 17, 1941. But as U-100 got to within 1,000 meters of her target ship, she was detected by the destroyer Vanek with its Type 286 radar. After the standard cat-and-mouse games of hunting, chasing, depth charging, U-100 would eventually be sunk by the Vanek as she tried to submerge. Six of her 53 crew survived to spend the rest of the war as a POW. Another U-boat that did not fare well during this encounter was U-99. In the thick of the fighting, what between the destroyer escorts dropping depth charges and the subs releasing torpedoes and trying to sink the merchantmen, it wasn't long before U-99 was out of torpedoes. Fortunately, her last one had sunk the Korsham, 
but that's when the watch officer on the U-boat spotted a nearby destroyer. This was just southeast of Iceland. The sub dove down, but was quickly picked up by the destroyers HMS Walker and Vanek. U-99 went down deep, but she had sustained damage while submerging. Seeing this, the captain had no choice but to head back up, and when she did so, the shells and bullets started slamming into her. The sub quickly sent a message to one of the destroyers, and it read, Captain to Captain, I am sinking. Please rescue my crew. And with that, Captain Ketchmer ordered that U-99 be scuttled. Only six weeks later, Captain Lemp was at it again, this time just southwest of Greenland, and this time following the ships of convoy OB-318 from Liverpool. Commander Joe Baker Cresswell, aboard the destroyer Bulldog, was in charge of the escorts, and he was trying not to allow a repeat as U-94, which had been following the convoy for the last few days, had managed two kills so far and was hungry for more. Even worse, U-201 joined in on the hunt on May 9th, and its captain made it clear he wanted to attack soonest. As U-boats travel faster on the surface versus submerged, with an attack about to be started, Limp moved out in front to get ready to submerge, and then attack. But countering this, Commander Baker Cresswell put several more destroyers in front as well. In truth, Baker Cresswell wasn't expecting an attack not this far west at this time in the war, but better safe than sorry. Suddenly, a water spout rose up next to the merchant ship Esmond. The civilian ship rose, settled back down in the water, and started going under. In reaction, Baker Cresswell ordered an emergency turn to port. This was to help the convoy miss any other torpedoes coming at them. But just before the order was given, another explosion of water rose up next to the steam merchant Bangor Head. Fortunately, the corvette Abraitia picked up a submerged signal and started to give chase. The bulldog followed in hot pursuit. Of course, the what they were chasing was U-110, commanded by Julius Lemp, but now Lemp had his own problems to deal with. Lemp had just released four torpedoes, one after the other, and seconds later, he heard one explosion. Then he was told of a problem, one much closer to home. It seems that one of the torpedoes, the last one, had yet to leave the tube. The tube had flooded with water, as it was supposed to, but for whatever reason, the torpedo was not forced out of it. As such, the sub was too heavy at the bows. Lemp started to lose control of U-110. It took Lemp and his team a few minutes of detailed management to right the sub, but just as soon as he had, a warning had come in about an approaching enemy surface vessel. There was nothing for it. Lemp ordered the sub to dive. And as they went further down, the crew could hear the depth charges going off all around them. After a while, everyone noticed that all had gone quiet. Lemp told his crew that they would all be safe. Then he started receiving damage reports. The rudders were unresponsive, the batteries were damaged, and giving off poisonous chlorine fumes, and the depth meters had failed. 
The engineer, his name was Hans, couldn't even tell his captain if they were sinking, rising, or staying level. Clearly, the tanks would have to be blown if they were to have any chance of getting back to the surface. But the biggest problem they had was a bent propeller shaft. Clearly, they would have to rise to the surface to figure this out or to abandon ship. Suddenly, the crew realized the sub was rocking. They must be on the surface, which is when Lemp yelled out, Everybody out! Once on the deck, Lemp could see that the bulldog was closing in, along with the other destroyer, Broadway, and the bulldog had just increased its speed to ramming. What to do now? On the other side of the equation, the Germans were still piling out of the sub. When the Bulldog's captain, Baker Cresswell, saw this, he had the engine thrown into reverse to pull alongside the damaged sub. But seeing all those men, those enemy combatants, around the deck gun, Baker Cresswell got nervous and ordered his own guns to be fired over the heads of the Germans. The one man standing on the sub, who was truly petrified, was a reporter, Helmut Eck. He watched the panic all around him, but then his eyes turned to Lemp. Just then, the radio operator, Hogel, ran up to the captain and asked, Should I destroy all the code books? To this, Lemp gave the perplexingly blunt statement, The U-boat is sinking. But this outburst can be explained, probably, as later the reporter Eck observed, the captain running back down into the sub, into his cabin, not to get the code books, but rather his own notebooks, for they were full of poetry for his girlfriend. As the saying goes, the heart wants what the heart wants. By now, the other destroyer, Broadway, was coming alongside, Baker Cresswell saw this, and he shouted through his loudhorn to the other ship, Do not ram! Broadway's boss, Lieutenant Commander Thomas Taylor, acquiesced to this. But, as his ship came alongside the sub, his ship's side was scraped by the sub's fin. A hole was torn into the destroyer. Taylor really wanted to ram her now. At this point, only Lemp and his number two, First Lieutenant Dietrich Lowe, were still on the sub's deck. Everyone else had already jumped into the water and were swimming towards the closest destroyer. After making sure the sub's vents were open, the two officers jumped in and started swimming for the bulldog. But about halfway to the destroyer, Lemp stopped, turned around, and saw that the sub was not sinking nearly as fast as it should have been. He told Lowe that they should head back, which is when fate stepped in as a giant wave pulled the men apart and pushed low closer to the bulldog. Lemp was pushed back towards his sub. Lemp used this start to swim back to his sub. Later, history would say that the British had no idea what ever happened to Lemp, whereas his crew, the man that they loved, said the British shot him from stopping him from returning to his sub. This is unclear and will probably stay that way. But at the time, the British crews were busy pulling enemy combatants out of the water. Either way, Baker Cresswell had the same idea as Lemp. When he saw that U-110 was going down way too slow, or not going down at all, 
he said to the man next to him, by God, we'll do a Magburg. That ship, the Magburg, had been a German cruiser and was captured in 1914 by Russians, and they made sure to get the code books. With that, Baker Cresswell told his young sub-lieutenant, David Baum, take some men, get over there ASAP, and grab any signal books you see. Baum was only 20 years old and was doing double duty as the navigating officer and in charge of the guns. Still, he grabbed eight men and crossed over through the oily waters. Just to give an idea of how intense the waves were, as they approached in their whaler, a wave picked up their smaller vessel and sat it down on top of the sub, none too gently. Climbing out of the wrecked mess, Baum got the hatch open and wanted to go down the ladder with his revolver in his hand, should some uber-patriot German stay behind with the sub and kill anyone who tried to plumb its secrets. But he could not, so risked everything and put his gun back into its holster. Once he was off his ladder, Baum took out his gun again and looked around. The watertight doors were open to either side of him. There was a tearing near the conning tower, and Baum could hear air escaping. This only reminded him that he was on a sinking sub and needed to hurry. Next, the team, some of them had come down the ladder by now, inhaled deeply, but could not smell any type of gas. So, they did not put on their masks, but they did have their guns out. Meanwhile, the other part of the eight-man team that had stayed on top found the retractable bollards, the thick pole-like structure that the vessel's lines are tied to. They also took the towing wire from the crew of the Bulldog. If this ship wasn't going to sink, by God, it was going home with them. Baum got his men moving. Leaning to compensate for the 15-degree list to port, Baum told his men to grab everything on paper, except for the obvious magazines and books. And because none of his men knew how to read German, there would be a lot of material taken off just to be safe. So Baum organized a human chain to pass things from deeper in the sub, to the control room, to the ladder, up the ladder, into the arms of the waiting men. It was then that a telegraphist exited the radio room and told the sub-lieutenant, there's something rather interesting I want to show you. The two men returned to the very small radio room, and the man pointed to a modified typewriter that was bolted down to the table. And when the man pressed a key on the keyboard, another key lit up. Baum, excited but not sure why he was excited, simply replied, unscrew it and send it down the line or in this case, up the line. After an hour and a half, the men were sent sandwiches from the destroyer Bulldog. Meanwhile, the Broadway sent over another whaler as the first one, sitting on top of U-110, had been finished off by the heavy waves. As sub-U-110 was still not going down, Baum decided to go to Lemp's cabin and sat down at his desk to eat a sandwich. First, he found Lemp's iron cross. Then he broke open a locker under the drawer, but nothing was inside besides first aid equipment. Meanwhile, the crew had disconnected the sound detection equipment, but could not get it through the hatch, so put it to one side. And as Baum then found a Cinna camera 
in the radio room, he started taking pictures of the wireless equipment and anything else that looked strange to him. In all, Baum and his men spent five hours on that rocking, slowly sinking submarine. Reports came in that if the team heard depth charges, not to worry, U-20 was nearby and being harassed. They would also find out that U-20 had just sunk their freighter Regalia and damaged Empire Cloud. Only later would the Empire Cloud be salvaged. At one point, the Bulldog had to leave the team behind, as another sub was spotted in the area. When Baum was alone with his team, he realized this was just the latest wave of fear to pass over him. First, he had been afraid when he was placed on the sub that was supposedly going down. Next was his fear of the responsibility of his eight-man team. And now here they sat, having done all they could while they waited for the bulldog to return. So at 4 p.m., he had all the hatches closed. He said a prayer and waited. An hour later, the bulldog was heard returning. Even better, the chief bosun's mate got a tow line around her, and at 6.30 p.m., the away team returned to the destroyer. Bomb felt like he could breathe for the first time in hours. As the Admiralty had been kept in touch with during all this, once they were back on board, the following message was sent from London. Your operation is to be referred to as Operation Primrose in all future signals. Reference to it is to be prefaced. Top secret and signals to be made only in cipher. Later, a second signal came in to make sure that those who were in the know did not talk and kept the current circle of who was in the know as small as possible. And, as this was a signal, like the first one, there's a good chance the Germans intercepted us. But unless they specifically knew what the subject was, it would be just another meaningless message. Leave it to the colorful people at Bletchley to worry about the Admiralty bragging about this coup and making the Germans suspect that their Enigma system had been compromised. If at all possible, the Admiralty did want U-110 saved, so they flew out a submarine expert. But even before he got there, the crew of the Bulldog knew it was only a matter of time before U-110 was gone forever. At 11 a.m. the next morning, the tow rope was cut and U-110 began her last voyage. That evening, the Bulldog got a third message. It read, Primrose having sunk makes it, no, repeat, no less important that the fact of having her in our hands should remain secret. The fact is to be rigorously impressed on all those who have any knowledge of the fact. On March 11th, the Bulldog refueled in Iceland and then pulled into Scapa Flow the next evening. Right away, two officers from the OIC, or Operational Intelligence Center, walked on board the Bulldog and straight for Baker Cresswell's cabin. What they saw shocked them. First, it was the sheer amount of paperwork captured. Some sheets were still hanging on a string trying to dry. But that's when these two men saw the strange-looking typewriter. One of them exclaimed, Oh, surely not this. We have waited the whole war for one of these. Right away, the two officers started taking tons of photos. 
Only after that did the two officers turn to Baker Cresswell and say, you can only tell your immediate superior about this. Baker Cresswell said, well, that would be C&C and Admiral Sir Percy Noble, commander of the Western Approaches. To this, he was told, fine, tell him, but no one else. The man that was speaking was Lieutenant Alan Bacon, and his part in this story is not over. Bacon told Beggar Cresswell, look, it's good that you lost the sub. Now we don't have to hide it. Next, he made sure that the German POWs knew nothing of what was going on, and the crew was sworn to secrecy. Bacon left and was in London by 6 p.m. the next day, May 13th. That same evening, he was driving to Bletchley Park, specifically to Hut 4, to chat with Harry Hensley. The code books that Baker delivered to Hut 4 became their entire world. From then on, German naval messages took a week to decode. Still, that's behind events. But as this was a war, future events were being planned all the time. And soon, the information they were getting, now that they could read German naval signals, would be acted upon. And the course of the war would change. <laughs> 